Good morning, everybody. Uh, I realized earlier in the first service that while this transition as senior, new senior pastor here is, is not as fresh as maybe the one that just happened with Alabama football, condolences, Bama fans, I know you're recovering. Congratulations, Auburn, uh, and everyone else, because someone can be on the top other than Saban now. Uh, I, I realized that I probably need to keep introducing myself for a while. So I'm Caleb. It's great to meet you. I'm so glad to be here with you. And, and just as a return favor, would you keep introducing yourselves to me probably for the next year so I can learn your names? There's a lot of you, uh, and, and I want to get to know you better, and I'm just I'm grateful to be here with you this morning. Uh, if you've been with us, you know we are, we are started a new series last week on the Gospel of Mark called Who Do You Say That I Am? And, and Mark In those opening 15 verses, he has told us in no unequivocal terms who Jesus is. He said, this is the Christ, the Son of God. This is God, the God who created the heavens and the earth, come in human flesh. It is God with sandals on, come to seek and to save his lost and broken people. And that Jesus... In verses 14 to 15, we see him launch his ministry. He begins to proclaim that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And we would expect at this moment there would be some firework moment. That we are going to see something grand, something big. God is here. God is moving. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is upon us. And then we just see something small. No fireworks, just dust. Jesus in a socially insignificant place, talking to socially insignificant people, doing something that in our eyes looks to be of no significance at all. And yet, what seems small to us, as we're going to see today, it isn't small in the eyes of God. And this mustard seed that we see planted here, it is something that across the ages God is going to grow into a tree that will one day shade the whole world. We get to see the beginning. Stand with me if you would for Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately, immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we ask, as we come here and we consider this text, 
Lord, we ask, would you show us what we don't naturally have eyes to see? Would you take the beauty of Jesus and would you arrest our hearts, our affections, everything that we are, so, Lord, that we would not leave this place without having come into a direct confrontation with him? Lord, we need you. And we ask, would you show us the beauty and the glory and the majesty of your son so that we would be transformed into that very same image? Do it now in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, over the years that I've been in pastoral ministry, uh, I've served in a whole bunch of different capacities. I've worked with middle schoolers, I've worked with high schoolers, I've worked with college students, I've worked with young professionals and young marrieds and young families. I've worked with those who are mid-career and those who are retiring from their careers, and I have had moments where I've sat with those who were on the door of death. And in all of those different circumstances of life, in all those various moments, there are these questions that come with each stage. There are different needs, there are different concerns, there are different worries, there's different fears. But I've noticed that there's one question, at least one question that unites them all. This question of what am I supposed to do with my life? It's the question you hear in the student as they're wrestling with what kind of person they're supposed to date or if they're supposed to date at all. It's the question you hear as they're wrestling with what college they're supposed to go to and then when they get to college, what they're supposed to major in and what they're supposed to do with the rest of their lives, the kind of person they're supposed to marry. It's the question of the young professional who suddenly finds themselves working at a job and wondering if this is what the next 30 years of their lives look like and really wishing it wasn't true. It's the question of the young married as they're sitting there looking at their new spouse and wondering what in the world they're supposed to do now that they're in this life where they are now joined together with another person in an inseparable way. It's the question of the parent who is trying to raise a little one and realizing every day that it is beyond their power and their capacity to do it and is going, Lord, what in the world am I supposed to do? It's the question of the person entering retirement who is wondering, Lord, what do you want me to do with the time that is now on my hands? And it is the question of the person who is staring death in the face. What do I do with this tiny measure of time that I have left? You know, the answer to those questions, it can feel, it can feel dizzyingly complex. But Jesus in our text today says to all those stages of life, to all those questions, there is one answer. In whatever you are facing, with all that you are and all that you possess, you follow me. Wherever that might take you and whatever that might bring, you follow me. And that answer, it's a simple answer, but it is not It's not an easy one, is it? Because to say yes to that, to answer that command, it is to say no to one way of life and yes to another. It's to say no to all the things we once found our comfort in, all the things we once found our life in, and to say instead, my life, my hope, my dreams, my everything, it is pinned on this person who is calling me to follow them. And you see the force of that command in these verses. Jesus walks by these two sets of brothers, and with one sentence, he flips their whole world upside down. 
And you see it in the details. We're told first, these, these are fishermen. These are men who are in their place of work. They are sitting at their proverbial desks, doing the thing that they do every single day of their lives. And before we think of this as just some kind of unserious business that they're engaged in, fishing on the Sea of Galilee, this was big business at the time. The, the, the product that they are making, the fish that they are catching, this is something they are exporting all across the known world. They are catching these fish and they are preserving them and they are shipping them out to places as far away as Syria and Egypt. If you were to travel around the Sea of Galilee, there were 16 fishing ports on that one sea. All of them filled with fishermen, each one trying to eke out their existence, each one trying to make a living for their families. These are serious men working serious jobs. It's not Huckleberry Finn along the edges of the Mississippi sort of fiddling the day away. And for James and John, we're told that not only is this a business venture, it's a family venture and a prosperous one at that. Because one, you notice that they have hired hands in the boat, which means they're doing well enough to supply not just for their family, but for others' families as well. But two, and this is significant, who else is sitting in the boat with James and John? It's their dad. And if there is one thing of supreme importance in the ancient Near Eastern world, particularly in Jewish families in the first century, it's your parents. They are the ones that you are to honor and obey and respect and care for. They are the ones you are never supposed to leave. And yet Jesus shows up He's preaching the kingdom and saying, repent and believe in the gospel. Follow me. And at the sound of that voice, suddenly these men drop everything. Nets are falling on the ground and fathers are left with their mouths open wide. And these men, they walk away from their livelihoods. They walk away from their families they walk away from the place where they have found their status and their worth and their comfort. They walk away from any sense that they are in control of their own lives, all to follow this man who has come and issued them this one command in no uncertain terms. You follow me. He is calling them to a radical reorientation of their lives where Jesus takes precedence over everything else. And here's what we need to know this morning. That call this isn't just Jesus' call for the first disciples. What Mark, through this entire book, is going to be telling us, this is Christ's call to every disciple. It is the call that he places on each and every one of us, and if we are going to obey that call, we need to know why. And this text gives us two very clear answers. And the first is this, because, because of who Jesus is. You know, those first 15 verses, Mark is not really making any bones about the identity of Jesus. This is the Christ, the Son of God. But Jesus here, he is announcing something very similar, but he is doing it in a much more subtle way, at least to our ears. And you see it first in the manner of the call. You know, when we read this, and we watch these guys, they see this 
perceived this rabbi walk by, call them to follow him, and they just drop everything and go, there's this part of us that goes, well, maybe this is normal. Maybe in this world, that's just what people do. Religious teachers walk by, religious teachers look at you, religious teachers say, follow me, and people drop everything and they follow. Maybe this has some precedent. But what we're seeing here, it doesn't have any precedent in rabbinical tradition. If you were a rabbi, you didn't go seeking disciples. You didn't call people to follow you. You didn't go out looking for people and then say, you, you come here and you stay there. No, what happened was this. Prospective students would come to rabbis and they would offer them discipleship. They would say, will you let me be your disciple? And then the rabbi would decide whether or not that person met their qualifications. Were they good enough? Jesus flips all of that on his head. Jesus isn't sitting back and waiting for disciples to come to him. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is stalking the side of the Sea of Galilee going, you follow me. Discipleship, it's not something that these men offer to Jesus. Discipleship is something that Jesus demands of them. It's weird. But the second thing is what's really, really strange. It's not just the manner of the call. It's the subject of the call. Jesus does something that is without precedent, not just for rabbis at this time. He does something that's without precedent even for the prophets in the Old Testament. If you were a rabbi or a prophet, the one thing that you never ever did was call someone to follow you. You called them to learn the Torah. You called them to adhere to God's statutes because in doing so, you were calling them to follow the only one who deserved the love of their whole hearts, minds, and souls, the Lord himself. You called people to follow the Lord. What is Jesus doing? He doesn't say, follow the Torah. He doesn't say, follow the statutes. He doesn't say, follow the Lord. Jesus says, follow me. He is claiming a position of precedence that was reserved for one and one only, and that was that of the God who created the heavens and the earth. Now, we need to sit on that for a moment because I think sometimes this is lost just how audacious a claim this is. My wife can attest to this. Um, she kind of hates this hobby of mine, but I am really fascinated by cult documentaries. I love them. Uh, not cults. I don't love cults. Just make that clear. I do like learning about them. And, and the reason is this. I'm fascinated by the kinds of things that people are willing to believe and give their lives to in order to find some sense of meaning and purpose. It's amazing to me. For example, I just watched this documentary a few weeks ago about a woman who was going around calling herself Mother God. She was claiming to be God in the flesh. She was the reincarnation of Jesus himself. And she was saying to her disciples that when I'm drunk, which was quite often, 
I become a channel for those who are dead to speak to you. And chiefly, most importantly, I become a channel for the dead, for the deceased comedian Robin Williams. Not a joke. And Robin Williams communicates through me in my drunken state to you, and those are the mandates from on high that you are supposed to follow. Now, it would be funny if it wasn't so tragic. Because there were people from all over the country who had come to live with this woman, who were following her from place to place, who were giving up their homes, their families, their livelihoods, cutting themselves off from everything, all to follow around Mother God and her Robin Williams musings. And and in this documentary, this, this thing that is always there in these stories, it becomes very plain very quickly, it is that whatever good this person seems to offer, however compelling they seem to be, always, inevitably, as time goes on, something starts to be revealed. The person who is calling them to follow after them, that person is almost always, I shouldn't say almost, they always are, revealed to be either a narcissistic liar of the very worst kind, or they are a lunatic, someone who is mentally insane and desperately needs help. And oftentimes that person is struggling with both. You know, I think we need to at least recognize that if what Jesus is claiming here, with a claim like this, Jesus opens up three very distinct possibilities. He is either a liar or a lunatic on par with Mother God and her Robin Williams acolytes. The kind that should be ignored, the kind that should be pushed aside, the kind we should not listen to at all. Or we have to consider the possibility that maybe, just maybe, he is exactly who he claims to be. And I can't speak for you. I can't answer this question for you. But as I read through the Gospels, I find it very hard to believe that the one I'm reading about is insane. Because if he's not sane, I don't know who is. And I find it very hard to think that he's a liar because if he's not good, I don't know who is which means there's only one option. The one who is speaking, he is the Lord himself. And here's what sets Jesus apart from all those other supposed messiahs. The authority he claims, it's authority that he demonstrates. Because what happened to all the other messiahs and all the other mother gods of the world? They died and then guess what happened? They stayed dead. Not Jesus. Jesus died, and Jesus rose, and Jesus lives, which means the authority of which that he claims is authority that he has demonstrated, and it is an authority that you even see on display here. Jesus speaks. He gives this command, this impossible command, and what happens to these men? It says immediately, Not like after a couple minutes, not after a couple days, immediately. They are dropping their nets and they are leaving their fathers. It is instantaneous. The same way that the wind and the waves respond to Jesus when he says, peace, be still. The same way that the demons respond to Jesus when he says, be silent and get out. The same way that the lame man responds to Jesus when he says, get up and walk. They hear the voice of Jesus. They hear that command, and where there was death, there is life. And they come to him like Lazarus out of the tomb. 
Because the one who is speaking, he is speaking with divine authority. And if you were a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, it is because you have heard the sound of that voice. It's because Jesus, in grace and in love, he broke into the midst of your life in the very same way he breaks into the disciples' life right here, and he spoke to you the very same words. You follow me. And it doesn't matter if your response was swift or if it was slow. It doesn't matter if it was revealed slowly over time or if it was an immediate impression where you knew what was happening. What we all have experienced is this. Whatever it is that has happened to us, us, we didn't start it, and we are no longer where we once were, because Jesus has broken into our lives. And the voice of the one who is calling, he's not a tyrant, he's not someone who has come to enslave us, he's not someone who has come taking as so many others have, the one who is calling us, the one who is bringing us into relationship with himself, he is the God of love and in mercy who has entered into the brokenness of this world, not just to be near to us, but to stand in our place and to die for our sins and to bring us to himself. A God who enters into the very brokenness of this world so that he could take people like us and make us whole. The one who, as Jesus says in Mark 10, came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When Jesus says, follow me, we say yes first because that's who he is. But that's not the only reason the text gives us. It's not just because of who Jesus is. It's because of what Jesus promises. Have you ever noticed what it is that Jesus actually says in verse 17? I mean, I, I have to confess, I've read this text a million different times, not literally, but figuratively. It'd be pretty impressive if I had. Uh, and almost always my brain reinterprets it. It reinterprets it to something like, follow me and you will learn to be fishers of men. Follow me and you will become fishers of men. But that's not what Jesus actually said, is it? Jesus says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. It's a command that is driven by a promise. The kind of promise that only God himself can keep. When I was in high school, uh, I went to three high schools over the course of four years, which was awesome, by the way. I highly recommend it. And during those four years at three different high schools, I, I was a wrestler. That was my sport. And before you think that get any illusions of grandeur, I was a bad wrestler. I was just mediocre at best. But at all those different high schools, as I engaged in that sport, uh, I had different coaches. They had different styles, they had different personalities, they were all unique in their own way. Wrestlers are a weird breed, they're a little insane. But all of them, all of them basically came with the same promises. It was, if you listen to me, if you engage in the workouts that I'm giving you, if you practice the skills that I'm asking you to practice, then I'm going to make you a great wrestler. 
You're going to go to state. You're going to win. You're going to do great. Just listen to me. And all these coaches I had, they had the best of intentions with those promises. They really meant it. If you do these things, I will take you to this place. But the truth is that no matter what they did, they were always going to be limited by this one massive problem, me. The issue was always going to be whatever raw materials I brought to the table. They could tell me whatever they wanted, but they couldn't make me into Kobe Bryant with that mentality that says I'm going to kill whoever's in front of me. That they couldn't give me the physical stature or imposing nature of a LeBron James. I'm just not that. They got Caleb with all of his weaknesses and all of his insecurities. And frankly, the guy who just was, didn't ever have that killer mindset. I didn't have the mental toughness to be an exceptional wrestler. It's just not in my makeup. They could teach me skills they couldn't make me new. Not Jesus This is the beauty of what Jesus is promising us here. The word who created the world is saying through that same word, I'm going to recreate it. I'm going to take what sin has broken. People who were made in my image and who were designed to bring my rule and reign to bear on the world, I'm going to take them and I'm going to restore what sin has broken so that you would begin to share in the work of God once more. And not because you are strong, not because you are able, but because I am going to do it. You know, we sometimes have this truncated view of what the gospel is. We think that the gospel is all about reconciliation. It is God redeeming us in Christ, forgiving our sins, and presenting us in his righteousness. I want to be super clear. It is that. If that wasn't true, we would have no peace. We would have no freedom Christ has truly, fully, completely redeemed us. He has made us adopted sons and daughters of God. That's a reality. But that is not all Jesus has promised to do. He hasn't just promised reconciliation. He has promised restoration too. In mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, part of the gospel is that a real person, Christ, here and now, is doing things to you. It is not a question of a good man who died 2,000 years ago. It is a living man, still as much a man as you and still as much God as he was when he created the world, really coming and interfering with your very self, killing the old natural self in you and replacing it with the kind of self he has. At first only for moments, then for longer periods. Finally, if all goes well, turning you permanently into a different sort of thing, into a new little Christ, a being which in its own small way has the same kind of life as God, which shares in his power, joy, knowledge, and eternity. Lewis says the gospel is that God now looks at you as if you were Christ but it is also that Christ now stands beside you to turn you into a little Christ. The promise of Jesus, the promise of Mark 1.17, is that if we follow him, if we abide in him, 
if we come as those who have nothing to receive from him everything, then Jesus promises us this. He says, the fish that I catch with the gospel, I will turn into fishermen who catch others with the same. I will make you new. And here's the beauty. Notice who he makes the promise to. You know, if there's one thing in the Gospels that always gives me great hope, it's just what a mess every one of the disciples is. He's not calling world shakers here. He's not calling the intellectual elites. He's not calling people who have it all together. He's not calling the kinds of people that rabbis were who had qualifications and who knew their Bibles backwards and forwards. He is calling simple men who have nothing to bring him but their sin, and you see it across every page of the gospel. The the disciples are supposed to be his witnesses, and yet what is that thing we are continuously told about them through 15 chapters? They don't ever seem to understand, which is a problem if you're going to bear witness. Jesus has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, And what are the disciples doing? It seems like every other moment. They're debating who's going to be the greatest. Jesus asks them to stay awake with him in the garden, and what do the the disciples do? They fall asleep. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And yet what happens when when the cross comes near? The disciples, every single one of them to a man, what do they do? There is nothing in these men that would make you think they even had the potential to be what Jesus promises to make them. And yet, here's the beauty. The fact that we are sitting here this morning, listening to the preaching of God's word, and hearing the word of the gospel again, and not just us, but people all across the world of every tribe and language and people and nation, and the fact that that has happened not just in this century, but for 2,000 plus years, it is because what God promised to do in these men, God did. And he didn't just do it in them. He did it in person after person, generation after generation, and if God has done that with these men, What makes us think for a second that he would not do that with us? There is this wonderful moment in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia where Lucy, this little girl, is sitting in the woods with the lion Aslan, who if you don't know the story, Aslan is sort of the Jesus figure of the Narnia books. And she is lamenting to Aslan because she realizes that she's been disobeying He has been calling her to follow him, and instead of responding, she has found every excuse to stay exactly where she was, and she realizes the main reason she didn't follow wasn't because she didn't know it was Aslan, it's because she didn't want to go alone. She was afraid she would have to leave her brothers and her sisters, and she is sitting there in Aslan's presence, and his glory is overwhelming her, and she begins to lament, what would have happened? What would have happened if I'd said yes? And Aslan looks at her, and he says this. He says, to know what would have happened, nobody is ever told that. But anyone, anyone can find out what will happen. Jesus, Jesus says the same thing to us. 
You may be sitting out there this morning and you are looking back at your life and you are seeing moment after moment where Jesus has called you by name and said, follow me. And you said, no. That's me. And you may have a heart that is full of regret, a heart that wonders, if only I'd said yes earlier, if only I had listened to that call when he first did, then maybe he could have done something with me, but now it's too late, now it's too far. And Jesus says to you what Aslan says to Lucy. You never get to know what would have happened, but you can find out what will. And the promise of Jesus in the gospel It's that it doesn't matter when you come. The promise is the same. Which means while you may not know what the journey is going to look like, you do know the end. It ends with God's people reconciled to the Father, but restored to the image of Christ. And to each and every one of us, sharing in the same glory that rightfully belongs to Christ alone. Because what is the promise? Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Gracious Father, we are thankful this morning, Lord, that we have a God who calls us out of darkness into his light. A God who doesn't leave us as we are, who meets us, and unlike us, isn't limited by the raw materials that we bring, but one who is able to make us new in the same way that he created all things out of nothing. And so, Lord, we ask as we come to this table, to this place, Lord, where you give us this tangible sign and seal of your son and of the promise that he brings, we pray, would you press it home into our hearts in Jesus' name.